This is a recording of a Bible study given at the chapel of the opened book under the covering title, The Pre-Roma, and is number three, a number one of a third series which would embrace the remaining books of Moses. This evening, we shall be reading together two Psalms, Psalm 29 and Psalm 96. And those who are listening to this recording, if they care to join us, we ask them to switch off for a little time and read those psalms together with us. I suppose you're conscious that those two psalms are linked together by the one expression, worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. But they, they are vastly different in another sense, that Psalm 29 the moment it speaks about holiness, speaks about the terrific majesty of the voice of the Lord, and practically speaks only of its effect in creation. And then when we come to the other psalm, we have redemption, showing forth his salvation, declaring his glory among the heathen, and ends up by being judge and king. In a measure, Psalm 29 is Genesis 1 and Psalm 96 is Revelation at the end. That is to say, the beginning and end of the whole story is this emphasis on the fact that God is holy, whether it be the creator at the beginning or the king at the end. Well, now our subject this evening is to link what we have seen in the first of these studies, especially in the book of Exodus, the need for redemption out of, and the need for atonement to lead us into this sacred, holy presence. Before we go into the other books, Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy, I felt that it would be a, a wise thing if we faced this evening the problem that was there evidently before Moses and the prophets. How were they going to teach a people like the people of Israel who at the beginning, when Moses had to deal with them, had been all their lifetime living in Egypt, surrounded by idolatry, and the prophets, well, they said they were just as bad and sometimes ten times worse. How were they going to emphasize and teach that people the meaning of holiness? It's fairly simple to demonstrate the meaning of righteousness. That comes much more within our scope. I think I've told you that once when I had access to Strangeways Prison, they provided me with a blackboard and chalk, and I said to them, I'm going to speak to you this evening about something that God himself cannot alter. And of course there were convicts there, and they looked at me a little bit quizzically, and I drew on the board a pair of scales. I said, God himself cannot alter that 16 ounces make a pound. Now that's the Hebrew conception of righteousness. The other one, which is based upon the same principles, is a plumb line. The pair of scales or a plumb line is used by God to demonstrate an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, 16 ounces of the pound. It either is or it is not right. But there's no such simple way of demonstrating holiness. We might have approached it this evening by considering the effect upon certain of the children of God when they approached in any way someone associated with the person and presence of the living God. You remember Daniel, commended by God. He said if only if, if Noah and Job and Daniel stood before him, they alone would save themselves by their righteousness. That was the sort of man Daniel was. And yet, even in the presence of an angel, Daniel said, all his comeliness turned to corruption, he fell on his face like one dead. And then you remember John, who at the Last Supper was so intimate with the Saviour that he could whisper to him, and they could speak to one another without the others at the table hearing them. And then he saw that same Saviour in the book of the Revelation. He said, I tell it, he speak as one dead. And Isaiah, who was chosen by God to be a prophet, when he saw the vision in the temple, 
and heard the thrice Hagion, the three times holy, holy, holy. He said, I'm a man of unclean lips. That's the effect. And I feel that we must not trifle with this word holiness. Far better to ignore it than to pretend we can encompass it. But don't you see, the more you contemplate it, the more it gives a sort of light. Wherever there is evil, wherever there is uncleanness, wherever there is anything that defileth, then holiness must be, like it says in the epistle to the Hebrews, a consuming fire. It's utterly impossible to be otherwise. So there's no trifling with a God like that. If you're going to stand in his presence, that question of sin must be righteously dealt with and completely. When we think of our own calling, what is the first thing that the Apostle Paul reveals as the purpose of God? Why is this ultimate goal? Chosen in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy. That's the first statement. And all the process from creation and Adam and the coming of Christ and redemption and the second coming of the ultimate presentation in glory is to reach that goal. In Second Timothy, going back before the foundation of the world, he says he has called us with a holy calling. And then, that pattern prayer which the Saviour gave to his disciples upon their request, he prefaces before ever they ask a single thing this statement, and it governs the lot. Hallowed be thy name. Now you say that to yourself and then ask God for something that's not quite square. Impossible. Hallowed be thy name covers prayer and its answer. And when you think of our Saviour in his last committal before the death on the cross, he uses an expression that occurs nowhere else. He said, Holy Father. Well, I feel that if we can use any means to bring us a stage nearer to our understanding of this tremendous term, I think we might say, well, it was well worth all that we put into it. I'll first of all give you a little indication of the words that are employed, so that you may be able to take these a stage further as you wish. Two words are mainly employed in the scriptures. The one in the Old Testament is Kodesh and its variants. You, you remember Kadesh, Barnea, that's the same word, Kodesh. And in the New Testament, Hagios and its variants. Parkhurst makes a sort of a guess that Hagios means A, negative, without, D, the earth, being separated from the earth. But I think he was hoping that was the meaning because apparently there's no connection. If you will turn to Leviticus chapter 20, you will find, by sort of comparison of terms, one of the thoughts which is insistent in this word holiness. Leviticus 20, verse 24, 25, 26. Leviticus 20, 24. But I have said unto you, ye shall inherit their land, and I will give it unto you to possess it, a land that floweth with milk and honey. I am the Lord your God, which has separated you from other people. See, I have separated you. Ye shall therefore put difference, put difference, separated, put difference between clean beasts and unclean, between unclean fowls and clean. And you shall not make your souls abominable by beast, or by fowl, or by any manner of living thing that creepeth on the ground, which I have separated from you as unclean. And ye shall be holy unto me. For I the Lord am holy, and I have severed you from other people, that ye should be mine. You see the insistence. Separated, differ, sever, holy. That is one of the outstanding characteristics. And it might be interesting for you to know that when the apostle, who was a Hebrew, don't forget, 
spoke about his own conversion and appointment, he said, when God separated me from my mother's womb and called me by his grace, he used the word, aphorizo, and that Greek word is, or should be known to you, because our word horizon, horizontal line, that imaginary line that divides the sky from the sea, aphorizo, he used that word, but when you go back to Jeremiah 1.5, which he's practically quoting, Jeremiah said he was separated in the same way. Jeremiah uses the word Kodesh. So you see, we've got a link. Old Testament says the word holy. New Testament says the word separate. So he's stressing that is one of the essential meanings. And then if you, while we've got Leviticus open, if you look at chapter 10, verse 10, He says, and that you may put difference between holy and unholy, between unclean and clean. The balancing, you see, once again, holy, unholy, unclean, and clean. The emphasis upon anything defining, when you come to think of the heavenly city, the holy city, there shall not enter into that city anything that defileth or worketh an abomination. I believe that you will agree with me that it's practically impossible for us to think of an angel that's deformed or crippled or blind or deaf or dumb. Could not be. So the more we think of these things, the more we begin to realise that holiness is perfection at the very ultimate. It gathers up in itself all other attributes. Anything which is holy must be right, must be true, must be pure, must be clean. It cannot have any contact with death or disease, not ultimately. I don't mean to say that a person today is unholy because he's not in good health, because none of us have come up to that standard but we're all in a half position. We're travelling home. But ultimately, when God at last is with his people, no more sighing, no more sorrow, no more pain. Well, none of those things are resident in holiness, for they all indicate some element of imperfection. Now, if anybody after that begins to take to themselves the word holy just now, you'll wonder if they're right in the upper story, wouldn't you? Not one of us can in ourselves. But oh, what a wonder, what a wonder those many words are used of us in him. And we're looking forward one day, friends, to be presented without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. What a beauty treatment. Do you realise the beauty of holiness? The beauty of holiness. In a measure... Holiness will transfigure a very plain or a very ugly face. Don't you wonder what your face looks like when you see it in the mirror? You try to imagine what it might look like if you were approaching this standard. You'd be like Moses. You'd wish not that your face shone. Well now we must get down then to this endeavour that we have before us of demonstrating a little more this um, peculiar expression, holiness. On more than one occasion, you will call to mind with regard to the tabernacle, its furniture, its ministry, its service, there were prohibitions that he die not. That he die not. It wasn't merely that you would be fined or there was some limited penalty. Death, you remember, once there was an argument put forward, like Korah ended in death, or Isaiah, he dared to transgress the law and unite in himself, priest and king, become a leper. Immediately, God impressing this element upon his people.
Well now, what I've done is this. All the world is before God and was made by him. And I believe if you were to take a shovel full of earth from Palestine and a shovel full of earth from any other part of the world and send them in separate bags to the horticultural society, there's every possibility that the one that came from somewhere else would be classed as a better soil than the one that came from Palestine. God didn't choose Palestine because it was free or different from all the others. He just chose it, like he chose you and me. But his choice makes the difference. And he said about that piece of land, that is mine, that is holy. So we'll just, while we've got Leviticus open, we'll just see chapter 25, verse 23, the way he speaks about that land. 25, 23. The land shall not be sold forever. For the land is mine. That governs all the dealings with selling property in Israel. You couldn't sell it outright. You couldn't, you couldn't barter away your birthright completely. For when the Jubilee trumpet sounded, it all went back again. You only had it on lease. And not 999 years lease, like you can see some things up here in this country. 50 years was the utmost. Then back it went. Mine, said the Lord. Of course, if you say that today to Persia and to Egypt and to the Arab nations round about, they won't have it. But God has spoken. And one day, every nation will bow. Everyone will acknowledge it is true. But they'll not do it willingly. And then if you'd like to turn to Zechariah chapter 12, we'll get the actual statement that it is holy. That's what we're after, isn't it? Zechariah chapter 12, verse, chapter 2, I'm sorry, verse 12. I'll read verse 11. And many nations shall be joined to the Lord in that day, and shall be my people. And I will dwell in the midst of thee, and thou shalt know that the Lord of hosts hath sent thee unto thee. And the Lord shall inherit Judah, his portion, in the holy land, and shall choose Jerusalem again. God has spoken. He's used the word holy. Be silent, O all flesh. That's it. God has spoken. He said that land is holy. And because it belongs to the Lord, and it has been separated from all the rest of the earth, that itself constitutes its holiness. And because we have been separated by his choice, by redemption, that is the basis of our holiness. Practical sanctification grows out of that. But holiness is first of all a separating unto the Lord. Well now let's begin our little argument. Here then the outside ring represents the land as distinct from all the lands in the earth. All these different places are separate from this land. I've got other references there. We may look at them as we wish, but I want to just go through this first of all in case time should beat us. Is that sufficient? Was it sufficient for the people of Israel just to come out of Egypt which is a symbol of the world, and to go through the wilderness that lie between the two lands, and then to enter into the land of Israel's possession, a holy land, was that enough? We say, no, it wasn't. That's the outside ring. You see, the ultimate expression of holiness is right in the middle of that little sanctuary in the middle of the, of the uh, <coughs> chart. <coughs> where Aaron went once a year, not without blood and a cloud of incense, right to the very centre. So you've got to go a long way yet before we get there, or before anybody can get there. God has put one ring round and separated the land, but it says, oh, there's a good many more wheels within wheels before you would appreciate 
holiness. I suppose this lies behind a good deal of the ceremonial that has been adopted by courts of kings. I suppose that if you could go straight up to Buckingham Palace, knock on the door, and a maid came and, and opened the door and said, well, can I see the Queen this afternoon? Oh, come in, sit down. You'd say, well, there's something wrong there, because that doesn't seem to be just what you would expect if you're dealing with royalty. You may not like the idea of royalty, but if you say that's so, well then, you expect to be ushered into a waiting room. And then somebody else who looks as though he might be almost the king of kings himself comes forward and gets particulars of you, you're ushered into another room. And by the time you've been ushered into two or three of these, you gradually get smaller and smaller in your own estimation, and that may be a part of it. Well, if that's so with regard to an earthly monarch, isn't it likely that it will be done by the king of kings? So there's no rushing into this presence. There is a great deal of preparation, as we may expect. So, first of all, these people are associated with a separate land, a holy land. Now, let's look at these people. Here we have a holy nation. Everything that was, in, was taught them impinged upon this question of holiness. The law was given from Mount Sinai with terrific accompaniments, the ceremonial law that followed, the appointment of priests and sacrifice, the ablutions, the various things that they had to do day by day, week by week, month by month, to impress upon these people that they were a distinct and separated people. I've mentioned to you before, i mentioned it again, that one of the questions that were always put to a rabbi who stood up as a teacher in Israel was, what was his opinion? In his opinion, was the first commandment of the law. You remember they did that to Christ. When he stood up as a teacher, they put it to him. They said, Master, what is the first and great commandment of the law? And he not only told them, but he told them a bit extra, you remember. First of all, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind, with all thy strength. And then he said, and the second is like unto it, thou shalt love thy neighbour as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. So it was a stock question. That was an exhibition of it. And another great rabbi was uh, put the question, and to us it seems a strange answer that he gave. He said the first and greatest commandment in the law of Moses was the law prescri prescribing that they should wear a fringe on their garments. Now, to a Gentile, that sounds absurd. You say, well, when you've got a people who say that's the first commandment of the law, to wear a fringe on your garments. But you say, friend, supposing you ask, what does that fringe stand for? That fringe on the garment the edging of blue was to remind that people all the time that they were a holy people separated from all others on the earth unto God. So it wasn't so foolish as it sounds. And when you remember in the throng, the woman touched the hem of his garment, that was it, that was it, that holy fringe which marked him as separated unto the Lord. And so we have this nation. Now we might look at one or two features with regard to them, which makes them his. They are his by redemption. 2 Samuel 7, 30, uh, 23. 2 Samuel 7. <coughs> 23. And what one nation in the earth is like thy people, even like Israel, whom God went to redeem for a people to himself, and to make him a name, and do for you great things and terrible, for thy land before thy people, which thou redeemest to thee from Egypt, from the nations and their gods. But what one nation in the earth is like thy people? They're separate. God has never redeemed a nation 
except one, Israel. Of course they are a type and a shadow of what all nations must be ultimately if ever they're going to reach the new earth. But here they are. They are the one redeemed nation among the nations of the earth. All others are ones and twos out of the nations, like we have been. But this was a redeemed people. Or shall we look at Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6, to see another way in which this people are peculiar unto the Lord. Deuteronomy 7, verse 6. speaking about their attitude to the Canaanites. He says, For thou art an holy people unto the Lord thy God. The Lord thy God hath chosen thee to be a special people unto himself above all people that are upon the face of the earth. They're a holy people. They're a chosen people. They're his chosen nation. No other nation on earth have ever been called by God a holy nation and no other people on earth have ever been called a chosen nation. This one people had these terms. And then you remember at the foot of Mount Sinai on condition that they kept the law of God they should be a peculiar treasure unto himself above all peoples on the earth. They didn't keep the law But that's in store for them, for what they couldn't do, Christ has done. The old covenant has been put aside and a new covenant has been brought in. The law will no longer be written upon tables of stone, but upon the fleshy tables of their hearts. But what other people has that been set on? So here we have then two things. We've passed two barriers. There's a holy land in the earth. There's a holy people who are to live in that holy land. Well, now you may say, well, that's secondary. That's all there is. And if we do, we shall fall into the terrible mistake that cost Korah and his companions their lives. So I want you to look at Numbers chapter 16. For that was his very argument. Numbers 16. Now Korah, the son of Izar, the son of Kohath, the son of Levi, notice him, son of Levi. He wasn't merely one of the outside tribes, he was the son of Levi. He was directly connected with the priestly family. And Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, and On, the son of Pedeth, sons of Reuben, they took men. And they rose up before Moses, with certain of the children of Israel, 250 princes of the assembly, Famous in the congregation, men of renown. This is a revolt. And they've got some very high-class names among them. And they gathered themselves together against Moses and against Aaron, and this is what they said to them. You take too much upon you, seeing all the congregation are holy, every one of them. That's their argument. All the congregation are holy, every one of them. Therefore, we're all priests, and you're taking too much upon yourself. Well, you know the consequence, don't you? They made a profound mistake. Because they were a holy nation, living in a holy land. They thought that was the last barrier over. Oh, it wasn't. Oh, no. They had to pay a fo- an awful forfeit for that mistake. When Moses heard it, he fell upon his face. And he spake unto Korah and unto all his company, saying, Even tomorrow the Lord will show who are his and who is holy, and will cause him to come near unto him. Even him whom he hath chosen will he cause to come near unto him. You've forgotten that, Korah. Out of a holy people, God still has a choice. There is, if I may borrow a term which I used in dispensational truth, so many years ago it seems almost antediluvian, an election within an election. Here we have an elect people being told that there was an election inside it, another ring, when you're dealing with holiness. 
You may be a holy people, but you dare not touch that furniture. You dare not go beyond that veil. You dare not usurp the place of the priest. If you do, it's dead. And it was a terrific death that took place. So what about Levi? Where does he come in? Shall we look at Numbers chapter 3? Numbers chapter 3, verse 5, onwards. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Bring the tribe of Levi near, and present them before Aaron the priest, that they may minister unto him. And they shall keep his charge, and the charge of the whole congregation, before the tabernacle of the congregation, to do the service of the tabernacle and they shall keep all the instruments of the tabernacle of the congregation and the charge of the children of Israel to do the service of the tabernacle. And thou shalt give the Levites unto Aaron and to his sons. They are wholly given unto him out of the children of Israel. And thou shalt appoint Aaron and his sons. And they shall wait on their priest's office and the stranger that cometh nigh shall be put to death. See? And then, verse 11 and 12 onwards. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, And I, behold, I have taken the Levites from among the children of Israel, instead of all the firstborn that openeth the matrix among the children of Israel, therefore the Levites shall be mine, because all the firstborn are mine. For on the day that I smote all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, I hallowed, hallowed, I sanctified, I set apart, I separated for myself all the firstborn of Israel. And then God said, in effect, but that would be a dislocation. If I compelled the firstborn of every family, of every tribe, up and down the land, to leave home and take part in this service, it would be a dislocation. It's like what happens now, the calling up at the age of service it muddles up school and it muddles up opportunities of uh, career. Everybody is sort of saying, well, I suppose it's got to be, but it's a nuisance. And God said instead, I will take one tribe out of the whole of the people instead of the firstborn of every family. And then, in order to make it equitable, those who were thus uh, found a substitute in Levi the firstborn were redeemed by the redemption shekel instead. The firstborn still in Israel pay the redemption shekel. In the synagogue, the priest has very little to do today. But one of the offices is to receive the redemption shekel. That's all. The reader is far more important in the synagogue today. So we have Levi. And then if you'll look at uh, Numbers the 8th chapter, you'll see some of the elaboration with regard to their preparation for their office. Numbers the 8th chapter, verse 5. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Take the Levites from among the children of Israel and cleanse them. That's the emphasis. Cleanse them. Now, no Levite turned around and said, Oh, but now I'm one of us. Holy nation, living in a holy land. Says, you may be. You may be. But you've got to remember that you are serving a holy God. And so cleanse them. And thus shalt shalt thou do unto them to cleanse them. Sprinkle water of purifying upon them. Let them shave all their flesh. Let them wash their clothes. And so make themselves clean. And then they take sin offerings and other offerings and bring them before the Lord in order that they may be fit, ceremonially at least, for this service. Verse 18 says, I have taken the Levites for all the firstborn of the children of Israel and I have given the Levites as a gift to Aaron. Well, there's that people. Well, we've already spoken about Aaron and the priesthood, so we're prepared. 
We don't fall into the trap now and say, oh well, now we've got a holy land and a holy nation and one holy tribe separated from all the rest. That's the end of it. Oh no, it's a no, no, no. There's more yet. This time we have to remember that the Levites were associated with the furniture of the tabernacle carrying one tribe had to carry the ark, another tribe had to carry the altar of incense, and so on. Others had to do with the boards, others had to do with the curtains. <coughs> they all had their appointed work. And anyone who dared to transgress the bounds died. Oh yes. But not one of those Levites could ever go into the holy place and light the candles, or light the lamps, or burn the incense. No, no, if he did, Dead followed. So who was going to do that? Oh, he came out of Levi. But it was one special family. The family of Aaron. You see, all the, all the Levites were wider than the family of Aaron. Aaron was a Levite, but there were others besides. So should we look just again at this book of Numbers, chapter 16, and see uh, what um, is said there? Number 16, we've looked at the first part of it. Let's look at verse 40. Well, you'll see what happened in verse 36. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto Eleazar the son of Aaron the priest, that he take up the censers out of the burning and scatter their fire yonder, for they are hallowed. Now there's, a, there's a, uh, one of the ways in which this word, holy, is used. They are hallowed. But they were wicked. They were wrong. Yes, but they're separated. They must never go back into common use, even though the users of them were put to death. The censors of these sinners against their own souls, let them make their broad plates for a covering of the altar, for they offered them before the Lord, therefore they are hallowed, and they shall be a sign unto the children of Israel. And Eliezer the priest took the brazen censers, wherewith they were burnt, they that were burnt had offered, and they were made broad plates for a covering of the altar, to be a memorial, to be a reminder, something to keep them, as it were, vigilant unto the children of Israel, that no stranger, you know, that's what it says, no stranger, that is to say, even though a Levite did it, he was reckoned in this case to be a stranger, although he was one of the inner circle, no stranger, which is not of the seed of Aaron. Doesn't say not of the seed of Levi. Not of the seed of Aaron. That one family in Levi come near to offer incense before the Lord, that he be not as Korah and as his company, as the Lord said to him by the hand of Moses. Now, Isaiah the king, as a part of his coronation, was compelled to read the law of Moses. That's a part of it. And that is perpetuated in the coronation service in Westminster Abbey. The Bible is always a part of the coronation service. Whether the kings who sit upon the throne of this country believe it or not is another question. We don't know. But it's a part of it. And the king was under an obligation. Not only to read it himself, but as far as my memory serves me, to make a written copy himself. So Isaiah the king knew that what had happened to Korah and when he went into the temple to burn incense, the priests would remind him of what happened. But he persisted. And in the mercy of God, he wasn't stricken with death. Except a living death. For a man went out of that presence a leper. And he was a leper to the end of his days. So that's what God intended us all to remember with regard to this distinguishing elements in holiness. Now you have numbers open. Numbers 18. Verse 1 to 8. And the Lord said unto Aaron, Thou and thy sons and thy father's house with thee shall bear the iniquity of the sanctuary. Now that's an extraordinary expression. They bear the iniquity of the sanctuary. <coughs> What's a bit of getting round, doesn't it? I thought the sanctuary was a holy place. It was, in symbol and in type. But it was made by things of this creation. 
and it was served by people of this creation. And so the whole of it was only a sanctuary in type and symbol. And they were everlastingly offering sacrifices and they were going through cleansings even though it was made of gold and beautiful embroidery. They bear the iniquity of the holy place. And there are my sons with thee shall bear the iniquity of your priesthood. That's a strange expression. That needs pondering. And thy brethren also of the tribe of Levi, the tribe of thy father, bring thou with thee that they may be joined unto thee and minister unto thee but thou and thy sons with thee shall minister before the tabernacle of witness. The difference, you see, between the form of the ministry of Levi and the sons of Aaron. And they shall keep thy charge and the charge of all the tabernacle, only they shall not come nigh the vessels of the sanctuary and the altar, that neither they nor ye also die. So although they could claim blood relationship. <coughs> Very close relationship. Aaron was a Levite. The rest of the tribe were all Levites. Yet only the sons of Aaron were permitted to go into this holy place. And they should be joined unto thee and keep the charge of the tabernacle of the congregation for all the service of the tabernacle. And a stranger shall not come nigh unto you. And you shall keep the charge of the sanctuary and the charge of the altar that there be no wrath any more upon the children of Israel. And I behold, I have taken your brethren, the Levites, from among the children of Israel. To you they are given as a gift for the Lord to do the service of the tabernacle of the congregation. Therefore thou and thy sons with thee shall keep your priest's office and within the veil, within the veil, the priest's office, and ye shall serve I have given your priest's office unto you as a service of gift, and the stranger that cometh nigh shall be put to death. Over and over and over again you'll get that element. We learn from the statement made by the Apostle when writing the epistle to the Hebrews, we'll look at it, Hebrews 9, with regard to the high priest himself. Although I dare say you know the words. Hebrews 9 verses 6 and 7. But I'm so modest, I, I even admit that the Apostle Paul might be able to say it better than I can. Hebrews 9, 6 and 7. Now when these things were thus ordained, the priests went always into the first tabernacle, the first part of it, accomplishing the service of God. But into the second went the high priest alone. There's the point. Now look at all those rings. From the outside ring of a land separated from all the earth, you go through barrier after barrier till you get to one man. <coughs> one man in the middle of all that. Alone. And one man alone once every year. Look at the way in which God was insisting upon holiness. Separation. Difference. Not without blood. Even though he were the high priest even though he wore the garments that had been prescribed, even though he had upon the mitre holiness unto the Lord, even so, not without blood, which he offered for himself. Well, if he offered for himself, he was no true high priest, because it would go an everlasting circle. If he had to offer for himself before he became high priest, well, he never could become high priest. Was only one in type and shadow. He had to bear the iniquity of his priesthood. What a statement. What a contrast to Christ, who is brought in the same epistle. For such an high priest became us, who is holy. First statement. Harmless. Undefiled. Separate from sinners. There's the other separation, see? Christ didn't have to bear any iniquity for his priesthood. He hadn't any blessed be God. There's the difference between Aaron and all these sons, and Christ, and we had no successor, bless him, because no successor for him, <coughs> for he ever living. So he says in Hebrews 9, I'll go on again, but unto the second went the high priest alone, once every year, not without blood, which he offered for himself, and for the er errors of the people, 
And this had a significance. The Holy Ghost, this signified. That the way into the holiest of all, now that's where Aaron went. The holy place was in beyond the first veil, where the priests were. But the holiest of all was beyond the second veil, and only the high priest went to that once a year. The holiest of all was not yet made manifest. And you find that Christ has entered into that. If you look at verse uh, 23 and 24, it was therefore necessary that the patterns of things in the heavens should be purified with these ordinary sacrifices, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ is not entered into holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true, types and shadows of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. So heaven itself is the real holiest of all. And it goes on to say, nor yet that he should offer himself often as the high priest enters into the holy place every year with the blood of others. But he entered once, and he shed his own blood, not for himself, but for his people. And so we have this emphasis upon access and boldness. We use those terms, access, boldness. I wonder whether we use them a bit more carefully now. Or let us still rejoice in the fact that the middle wall of partition is gone, that the veil in the temple was rent from top to bottom, and that now there's no difference made between whether you belong to this tribe or that, or you don't know what tribe you belong to at all. No, that's all gone. But don't let us feel what it doesn't matter. Oh, it still does. We go near. We draw near. We have access. We know we have a right there. But all friends, it was bought with a price. It was bought with a price. And we're going to enter into the presence of a God who cannot look upon iniquity. And holiness, and nothing less than that, is the goal of our redemption. Now this word holy is used of God himself. Holy is his name. Oh, perhaps I'll just run over these features and then I should, I should imagine that's about all the time we shall have. Uh, supposing we look at Psalm 89, verse 35. Psalm 89, verse 35. Once have I sworn by my holiness. And we are told that he confirmed by an oath his promises and he could swear by none other than he swore by himself. But what an oath that must be when God swears by this character. Not, my, not, my, not merely by my almightiness or by my righteousness, but once have I sworn by my holiness. Can you think of an oath stronger than that? It doesn't seem possible, does it? Or let's think of a place, because places are spoken of, as you know, of holiness. I'll just give you one instance, I think, from the book of Deuteronomy. Look down from thy holy habitation. This is Deuteronomy 26.15, if you want to make a note of it. Look down from thy holy habitation from heaven. That's the definition of God's habitation. And then there were many things that were consecrated and therefore had become holy. I'll just give you a reference in Exodus 30, verse 10. And Aaron shall make an atonement upon the horns of it once a year with the blood of the sin offering of atonement once in the year. Shall he make atonement upon it throughout your generations? It is most holy unto the Lord. That once a year. You see, he's back again on it. Once a year. That man alone, and that is holy. 
that he's doing. It's the essence of holiness. And then you have quite a number of times different persons set apart as holy. Let's get one from the prophet Isaiah, chapter 62, verse 12. And you will remember, won't you, that I'm only lifting out odd references. I've got a whole set of them before me which we cannot (coughs) deal with in detail. Isaiah 62. So we to read verse 10. Go through, go through the gates. Prepare ye the way of the people. Cast up, cast up the highway. Gather out the stones. And of course, if you know anything of ancient Palestine, that was a thing that had to be done whenever a king or a great person came into the land. Apparently, those who had vineyards, they had no qualms of pitching all the rubbish out onto the road outside, and they got an awful mess. Great stones and nuts. But when the sultan or someone was coming, then everybody was roped in, whether they liked it or not, to make way, make the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. See? That's what John the Baptist, he knew all about that. So, cast up, cast up the highway. Gather out the stones. Behold, the Lord hath proclaimed unto the end of the world, Say ye to the daughter of Zion, Behold, thy salvation cometh. Behold, his reward is with him and his work before him. And they shall call them the holy people. They shall call them the holy people. The redeemed of the Lord, and thou shalt be called, sought out, a city not to say. They are a holy people. And so we come to the thought again. This is in some measure a very crude attempt to visualise what the law of Moses and the prophets had to do. They had to bring before people like ourselves and people who have been steeped in unholy practices in the heathen land, they had to bring before them this ultimate conception of holiness. Well, how are you going to do it? What words can you use to do it? Well, they didn't. They adopted this method of going past barrier after barrier after barrier from the outside to the very inner, innermost part in order that it may be impressed upon them that this question of access into the presence of God even though it was there even though it was intended by God was never to be something that was to be taken as a, a familiarity. It was something that was sacred and something that was precious, and something that was bought with a price. And if that was true of Israel, how much more should it be true of ourselves? Shall we not remember, as the Apostle tells us, wherefore remember that ye, at that time, you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel? What chance have you, friends, of getting anywhere near if a stranger that drew near should be put to death and you're told you were an alien from the commonwealth of Israel and a stranger that draws near should be put to death and strangers from the covenants of promise having no hope and without God in the world that's this black part all around the outside the outside nations in their darkness so don't let them accept this gift of God without some thought of the wonder of it. And I'm sure if we do, then this run over these strange materials this evening will not have been most surely in vain.